We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. One note of housekeeping, we are winding down our Patreon at the end of October. There will be no more Patreon. We'll just be coming out on Wednesdays for free for everybody. Thank you so much to our Patreon family for supporting us through all this time. We love you. I thank you so much for the support. I look forward to continuing to rock on with this show with you for years to come. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she's on. I'll think about everyone you need. I'll hold in it, things are moving real now. I'll have you seen you wanting you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> Those people attacking the Capitol really believe the big lie. The people inside the Capitol, uh, these Republican members, they knew it was a big lie. And they continue to spread that big lie and, and to inflame people because Trump wanted them to, because they were afraid to cross him, because they thought it was politically advantageous. Um, they were pulling out one of the pillars of our democracy, the idea that we allow elections to decide who represents us. And I was just furious. I mean, when you get over the, the fear, it gets replaced by anger. And I was just furious with my Republican colleagues. Congressman Adam Schiff led the impeachment hearings, was a big part of the Benghazi hearings. He is now the author of Midnight in Washington, a great book about what it's like to have been a congressman through a very crazy and difficult and wild period in American history. It was an honor to talk to him about 1-6, the impeachment hearings, living through Donald Trump, Benghazi, and so much more. I love these political conversations with really thoughtful, important people who understand the real DC experience. So I relish this conversation. I hope you do too. 
It's the author of Midnight in Washington, Congressman Adam Schiff. He's been in the House of Representatives for over 20 years. Adam Schiff on Touré Show. You know, congrats on this book. It's really well written. It's very human and honest and direct. It's not one of these policy conversations. It's a memoir of your living through a fairly insane period in American political history. Um, and you start talking about one six and the lead up to that and your experiences in that. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your experience of that insurrection. You talk about in the book, some of the things that happened, but the fear that you must have felt, you heard the gunshots when they killed Ashley Babbitt. You saw some of the anger that, that your colleagues and you were, were expressing toward the Republicans. Like you guys are why we're in the middle of this madness. Can you talk about some of that experience for you that day and the feelings that you were feeling as you were going through this. I mean, as one of your colleagues said, you would not have been able to talk your way out of it. God forbid they had found you. It would have been a very difficult uh, day for you. Uh, Well, you're absolutely right. Um, It was a harrowing day from start to finish. And, uh, and when we were on the house floor and they were battering the doors and breaking the windows um, there was a real logjam to get out of the House floor. The Capitol Police were saying, you need to get out. You need to move it. And uh, I hung back uh, um, as others were you know, crowding the door. I didn't want to add to the melee to get out of the room. Uh, and I remember a very young staff member, a young woman came up to me and, and she could see that I was waiting. And she said, Mr. Schiff, are you OK? And I said, I- I'm fine. I just, uh, you know, I don't want to join the the scrum to get out. And, um, and then I just thought as an afterthought, well, what about you? Are you okay? And she said that she was fine. And it was so striking. Here was this young woman uh, worried about me uh, having that kind of presence of mind, but it was also striking to, uh, to talk to the Republicans. uh, One of which was carrying a wooden post in his hand. Uh, We had these posts that were set up with hand sanitizer uh, and they were, you know, nailed into the floor. Uh, and he had uprooted this thing and he was going to use it as a club if he needed to defend himself. And I looked at him and I said, how long have you been here? Because he had a member pin on, but I didn't recognize him. And he said, uh, 72 hours. And I said, 72 hours. And he said, I was just elected. And uh, I didn't know how to respond to that. And I said, in a kind of a dark humor way, um, it's not always like this. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, the, the, the terrible tragedy of it among many tragedies is those people attacking the Capitol really believe the big lie. Um, the people inside the Capitol, uh, these Republican members, they knew it was a big lie and they continue to spread that big lie and, and to inflame people, um, because Trump wanted them to, because they were afraid to cross him because they thought it was politically advantageous. Um, they were pulling out one of the pillars of our democracy, the idea that we allow elections to decide who represents us. Uh, and, and I was just furious. I mean, when you get over the, the fear, um, it, it, it gets replaced by anger. 
Um, and I was just furious with my Republican colleagues. Um, and, and it's really hard to look at them the same way. After that attack, they were right back on the House floor, uh, still blood on the ground, literally. And they're still trying to overturn the election. Uh, I mean, it was just unfathomable. When you are in that moment and you and others are saying to your Republican colleagues, this is your fault, that's a very real emotion. And at the same time, it's it's counterproductive because we, it push come to shove, the two of you would work together to escape the situation. Uh, but I, I mean, it's it's so honest and real. And uh, just just tell me about that moment and how you guys are feeling and how they're responding to this, to, to you correctly saying, this is your fault. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that I was on the House floor for all of this is a few months before the election, I had suggested to the speaker that we form a little rump group of members to try to anticipate all the things that might go wrong uh, down the road with the election. What if the Electoral College was tied or what if a state sent two slates of electors or what if the vice president refused to do the count? Um we predicted everything, you know, we looked at about a thousand different possibilities. We predicted everything except the thing that took place, which was an insurrection. And uh, and when it did happen, um, there was really no mistaking the, the culpability of the Republicans. And so our members were furious. You know, going into that day, I remember um, in, being in a meeting with the speaker and strategizing about our arguments on the floor against the effort to decertify the election. Uh, and I, I made the suggestion that we we portray it as I believe it was uh, a continuation of Trump's assault on our democracy, which we had seen for four years. And the speaker's response, and I think she was right, was let's not make this about him. Um, let's keep this at a very high level um, uh, and and uh, not that, not make this about any one person. Now, this was before the insurrection starts. After the insurrection, we're back on the House floor. There is no trying to uh, minimize, sugarcoat, avoid exactly uh, the, the nature of what happened and the president's role in inciting it. And one of the most startling speeches of that day came from a very moderate uh, member, um, Connor Lamb of Pennsylvania. Um, uh, former Marine and very, you know, usually very quiet, soft-spoken, civil. Uh, and he took to the House floor and he said, let's not make any mistake, and I'm paraphrasing here, about what's gone on here today. Um, and and let's, let's also not uh, ignore the fact that a lot of these people who attacked the Capitol walked away scot-free. Um, and I think we know why they walked away scot-free, uh, whereas other people would not have. Uh, and of course, here he was talking about people of color, and uh, but it was it was really so striking to see someone normally so reserved. Uh, and he said, "You know, I, I came to the floor today expecting to be respectful of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, um, but I can't be respectful here. You should be ashamed of yourselves." And then the Republicans, you know, tried to take his words down, which is this arcane procedure where if somebody on the other side says some per- something personal and insulting. And you try to take their words down and then there were shouts back and forth. And then some of the Republican members seemed to gravitate toward the center of the chamber. And the Democrats did. And it looked like it could even be a brawl. I remember uh, feeling very good that we uh, had Colin Allred, uh, all of six feet, I don't know what he is, and, and pure muscle uh, on our side saying, 
you know, you really want to go there. And uh, I think they took one look at him and said, no, we don't want to go there. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it, it, it reminded me of how, you know, during the Civil War and Reconstruction, you had people in brawls on the House floor uh, and how divided our country had become. A lot of folks on the left are frustrated with the pace of arrests um, and prosecutions for folks who were insurrectionists on 1-6, um, frustrated with the amount of time or lack thereof uh, in prison that people are getting. And, and now some folks like Steve Bannon and others are saying, I'm just going to refuse to show up. Um, where? What do you feel about that? And what can you do to help the, the Department of Justice um, and Congress actually hold people's feet to the fire? Well, uh, you know, I, I um, just calls to mind uh, a conversation, conversation I had just uh, about a week ago. I was walking out of the Capitol and one of the Capitol police officers uh, stopped me, who I'd, I'd come to know because of the, the attack and the hearing that we had with these police officers. And he said, can you can you explain something for me? And I said, well, I'll try. And he said, the woman who was um, arrested for you know, breaking into the Capitol that day and threatening to kill the speaker, she just got a, a deal where she uh, she can plead to a misdemeanor. That's just a slap in the face. That's just a slap in the face. Why, why did that happen? How is that possible? And I said, you know, honestly, I can't explain that. Um, I was a prosecutor for almost six years, and um, the only way I could explain it made no sense in this context, which is if you have a, a weak case, there are problems with evidence, then, then you offer a really good deal. But here, the evidence was on tape. Um, right. She's on video saying these things. She's on video inside the Capitol that day. So uh, I don't understand it. And, and actually, a lot of judges have been speaking out, which I think is a really interesting uh, and courageous thing for them to do, saying, what kind of deals are these that the government is striking? Um, and in terms of, of Bannon and others that we've subpoenaed to come in, um, we expect that if people don't cooperate, um, they will be prosecuted uh, if they don't do their lawful duty uh, when they're compelled to appear and testify. Um, but I can tell you the reason why they feel, people like Bannon feel, they can thumb their nose at the law. And it's because for four years, that's what they did without consequence. Um, I, one of the things I write about in the book is the scene in the bunker. And I, I want to take the readers into that Intel committee space, three floors below the Capitol, which is always freezing in there. It's like a meat locker. And Bannon comes in to testify in the Russia investigation. Of course, he's a key figure in this. Um, the Republicans at the time were in charge of the investigation. And uh, initially, Bannon refuses to answer questions about a whole lot of stuff that's really relevant. And at that time, um, the book Fire and Fury had come out, and Bannon was quoted in it saying these things about Trump and about his family that got the former president really pissed off at him. And so he was on the outs with the White House. Uh, Breitbart was essentially taken away from him. He was a man without a country, powerless to, to punish Republicans if they stood up to him. So initially, some of the Republicans did, and they were like, you can't come in here and not answer these questions. So they subpoenaed him on the spot. Um, first time they were willing to do that when we had all these other witnesses like Jared Kushner and Ivanka, not Ivanka, but Jared Kushner and, and uh, Don Jr. and others come and refuse to answer uh, questions. They had no legal right to refuse. 
but they're willing to hold Bennett's feet to the fire. So Bennett comes back in two weeks later. He's under subpoena now. This time he brings a list of 25 questions that he will deign to answer, but only 25. And the answer to all of them is the same. No. Uh, and I asked him, you know, where'd you get these 25 questions? And the answer was, he got them from the White House. So we're, we're investigating the Trump White House and their collusion with Russia. And the White House has written out for him the only questions that will allow him to answer, which are very misleading questions. Uh, and one of them was, uh, um, have you met with Devin Nunes to discuss the Russia investigation? And uh, the answer was no, like the answer to all the other questions. And I asked him, well, have you talked with Devin Nunes about the Russian investigation? And his answer was yes. Uh, and right immediately thereafter, too slow to stop him from answering, his lawyer says, don't answer that. Because uh, my question wasn't one of the 25. But he did answer it and revealed not only just uh, how contrived it was for the White House to be writing a witness's questions and answers for them, but how they were deliberately misleading as well. But he was, he was never held accountable. And so he believed then that um, you know, with with a, you know, with one of Trump's attorney generals in the Justice Department, um, that he would be fine if he was covering up for the president. And uh, but those are not the circumstances now. Uh, we have a different Justice Department, an independent Justice Department led by someone who believes in the rule of law. Uh, and so we expect that these subpoenas will be enforced. The 2020 election was fair in spite of all the lying and yelling about it afterwards. I envision, and I think a lot of people envision that the the lie, the big lie will lead to, will be picked up again in 2024. That will be the sequel. And Republicans are already primed to not believe in uh, the integrity of our election. Are you confident that in 2024, we can have a fair election, that the actual winner will be announced properly and in a timely manner, um, and that we won't have a further splintering of the country as Republican voters, if they should lose, will go off and say, you know, like, it's even more unfair than it was before. Uh, It's a deep concern, honestly, uh, what's going to happen in 2024. Uh, If you look at our recall election in California, which was also a free and fair election, when Republicans lost, um, they claimed it was rigged. 60% of California Republicans believe the recall was rigged because they lost. Um, and what concerns me the most of what I see going on is that um, we may have another attack on the Capitol. Um, the president is still pushing the same big lie that led to the first attack. But, but what is a graver danger to the democracy is this. If there's another attack on the Capitol, it will fail like the last one. But what might succeed is this effort around the country uh, that Trump and and Republicans are making to take away the duties of independent elections officials and give them them over to partisan boards or people beholden to Donald Trump. Um, They are preparing to succeed where they failed in 2020, which is if they lose the election, um, they will overturn it. Uh, And we may not be so lucky this time. Um, in 2020, when Donald Trump uh, picked up the phone and called Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, and uh, told him to find 11,870 votes or 780 votes that don't exist, um, anyone else would have been indicted for that. But uh, there was somebody in that Secretary of State's job who said no. Um, 
And the view of the Republican Party and Donald Trump is, well, if he won't find 11,780 votes that don't exist, we will find someone else who will. Uh, and if those people are in place in 2024, um, then uh, they may succeed this insurrection by other means, insurrection, uh, insurrectionists this time wearing suits and ties. Yeah, yeah. One of the sections in the book is uh, truth isn't truth, right? And this is a big part of the problem that we on the left are dealing with, that the right is not dealing with reality. They're dealing with alternative facts. They're dealing with non-truths. They don't believe media. They don't believe science. They don't believe experts. Uh, and so we are arguing about central issues in American life, the election, the vaccine, immigration, and we're dealing from facts and they're dealing from feelings. And how do we ha even have a national conversation and make law um, and move the country forward when half of the country or 40% of the country is not dealing with facts? It's, it's enormously hard. And I think of all the destructive things of the last four years, uh, what was most corrosive to our democracy was this relentless attack on the truth. Um, you know, by people like the former president who lied, you know, time after time after time in a single day um, uh, with uh, people like Rudy Giuliani saying the truth wasn't truth and, and doing his own lying every day. And Kellyanne Conway with her alternate facts. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember rushing back to my college dormitory to watch Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. That was the time when there was a large body of agreed upon fact and we might differ with what to do with those facts. But we agreed they were facts. Uh, and without that kind of shared experience, uh, it's very hard to make a democracy work. Uh, the, the relentless attack on the press over the last uh, four or five years, um, it's right out of the autocrats playbook. Um, you know, Trump uh, needs to make everyone to be out to be liars uh, because the truth is so damning to him. Uh, but we have to fight back against it. And we have to uh, push out the truth relentlessly. Uh, that's the only antidote here. Um, part of the challenge is, is this social media environment that we're in, where lies and anger travel with virality. But part of it is, too, that uh, the last five years have revealed uh, what people are really made of. Um, now, some of this was, was obvious even before the last five years. And I tell a story in the book about uh, sitting next to Kevin McCarthy on an airplane, flying back to D.C. This was uh, back in 2010, six months before the midterms. And we were having an idle conversation about who was going to win the midterms. And I said it was the Democrats. And he said it was the Republicans. And then the movie started. And I thought, thank God for the movie. Um, and we landed and we went our separate ways. And, you know, little did I know, he went off and did a press briefing that night and told the press Republicans were going to win the midterms. Everybody knew it. He sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane, and Adam Schiff admitted that Republicans were going to win the midterms. And I was, I was incredulous. And I, I sought him out on the House floor immediately. And I said, Kevin, uh, if we're having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, I said the exact opposite of what you told the press. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Um, and I was like, no, Kevin, I don't know how it goes. You just make stuff up and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But it is how so many of them operate. And, and in that respect, McCarthy was really ahead of his time. 
He was made for a time when his party cared nothing about the truth uh, and had a party leader um, who, who would make the most vicious assault on the truth of any president uh, since Nixon. And I think he probably easily eclipses Richard Nixon. It, it, this leads into you know a big part of the book, the, the Benghazi hearings, um, which is when I think a lot of Americans uh, came to know you. You became much more of a household name through that experience. And it was such a such a frustrating example of the Republicans using the judicial process as a political weapon. And I felt watching you through that, like your frustration with like, you guys have got to be kidding. Like, this is not the way that we were supposed to use uh, the process. Well, that's exactly right. And, and you know, interestingly enough, um, we had done uh, an investigation of Benghazi in the Intelligence Committee before there was a select committee. And that investigation, to the credit of the Republican chair at the time, was very nonpartisan. And it completely debunked all of the conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton and standing down security and all the rest of this stuff. Um, but because it didn't produce the right answer, McCarthy agitated for this select committee which then Speaker Boehner didn't want to do. He thought it would be a waste of time. Uh, but ultimately they did. And McCarthy was very, you know, very plain in an unguarded moment about why they did it. They wanted to tear Hillary's numbers down. And so here they used the tragic death of four Americans uh, as this political cudgel, uh, pushing out these false conspiracies. And now this was pre-Trump, but if he were watching, he, he had to be really pleased with how it turned out. And it was really a, a bridge to a Republican future where um, they would they would uh, uh, exploit anything, um, mislead the country about anything to serve a political end. Um, and uh, the only, I, you know, used to say the only good thing about uh, my being on that select committee and, and the way, I, you know, it's kind of interesting the way I got put on that select committee on Benghazi was I was on Chris Wallace's Fox News Sunday program when Boehner announced he was capitulating essentially to McCarthy and he was going to start this select committee to do now the seventh or eighth investigation of Benghazi. Um, and Wallace said, you know, what do you think Democrats should do? And I said, I don't think Democrats should have anything to do with it. Um, and uh, and it, it became this huge explosion in Fox World, shift calls for boycott of Benghazi select committee. And, uh, uh, and, and my reward for saying that we should have nothing to do with it was being asked to serve on it. Uh, and uh, I used to say, I, I want those two years of my life back with one exception, which was I got to know Elijah Cummings. And that was such an honor uh, to get to know him and uh, to to study uh, uh, at his side. And uh, so um, I do I, I don't regret anything about that part of the committee, which was getting to know that that incredible human being. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. 
Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I, I know that the Supreme Court uh, nominees are handled by the Senate. N- not your specific scope, but as a, as a person who understands D.C. incredibly well, I am very afraid of eventually one of the justices will, God forbid, pass away or have to step down and I don't imagine that the McConnell Senate, uh, the McConnell Republican-led side of the Senate, would allow anybody to to replace them, especially if it's somebody from the conservative side of the bench. But even if it was on the, the left side of the bench, they wouldn't allow anybody to replace. So we would have an eight-person Supreme Court for, you know, until they could get another Republican president. Um, do you see any way out of that that future? Uh, I, the only way I see out of the future, frankly, is to make sure that we maintain and expand our majority in the Senate. Um, I, I don't think uh, um, there's any question that Mitch McConnell, um, if given the opportunity, will do the same thing he did before. Um, he will stonewall a confirmation of a Democratic nominee, just as he did Merrick Garland. Uh, and if he's given the chance, he'll jam another conservative justice down the throat of America um, uh, in the, the wake of a, a losing Republican uh, campaign. Um, indeed, the, the decision that Mitch McConnell, who previously, I think, was believed to be one of the institutionalists, but his decision in 2016 
to withhold uh, 2015, 2016, withhold the confirmation of a justice to to do that kind of a, a service to the country and and uh, um, insult to the uh, dignity of an co-equal branch of government. That was really a canary in the coal mine, that something was changing in America. Um, similarly, in 2016, when a Democrat was elected governor in North Carolina, the Republicans responded not by saying, okay, we're going to have to do better next time. We're going to have to update our ideas or get rid of our backward policies. No, they responded by stripping the governor of some of his responsibilities. And that, too, is a sign that things were changing uh, in one of the parties, that uh, it was not content to um, to try to fight and, and, and win another day when they lost, but to try to change the rules of the game, to try to um, fight the, the impact of the election, to try, try to disenfranchise people, the, the recognition among the GOP that their, their base is small and shrinking, and their only chance to retain power is to prevent other people from voting, and particularly people of color. Um, it, that's a real, uh, in some ways, obviously, uh, return to the past, um, but also portends a really dangerous future. Yeah, you make me think about 2012, I believe it was, um, when uh, Reince Priebus's autopsy said, uh, we need to stop demonizing uh, black and brown people. We need to find a way to, to welcome uh, Latino people into the party and Hispanic people into the party. And then they went exactly in the opposite direction. And as much as we talk about Donald Trump, he is a symptom of what has been brewing in that party uh, you know, for several decades. He, he, is, he, is, he is just part of the road they've been traveling, right? He's not an aberration. He is almost the logical end point of what they've been developing toward for several decades. I think that's exactly right. And one of the running themes I have in the book is something uh, that the historian Robert Carroll once observed, uh, and that is that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it reveals who we are. And the last five years have revealed who a lot of the people I serve with are. It turns out they don't believe in any things that they said they believed in. Um, they don't believe in, uh, you know, a party that includes others. Uh, they don't believe in conservative ideology. They don't believe in states' rights. They, they don't believe in any of this stuff. Um, they only believe in the perpetuation of their power. But the last five years have also revealed something about the country, um, about its deep-seated racism, uh, about uh, the, the, uh, the feeling right below the surface that so many people hold, suddenly given license to express itself. Um, uh, in, in the most ugly uh, terms. And um, it, it's, I think, a shock uh, um, to those who are not living that experience. So it's a shock to me. It probably it's not a shock to you. Um, but uh, it, it, uh, it's a terrible um, realization to know that um, uh, so, uh, so much of the country has not made the progress that we hoped. Um, and, uh, you know, we are still bedeviled by, uh, by our nation's origins and, uh, and history. Um, I, I mean, I think this conversation has reflected that, you know, if you were doing a political science discussion of the past 20 or 30 years, 
of, of, of American political parties, the headline would have to be Republican Party goes off the deep end, anti-truth, all the sort of things we've talked about. But what can the Democratic Party do better to take advantage of the fact that you have an anti-truth uh, opposition that is going off the rails, that is using government as a weapon against the country. We have not, as Democrats, started to dominate the political conversation. Uh, you know, we're not winning all the issues like we could. We're not winning all of the elections like we could. What could we do better um, at every level of government so that we can best serve the entire country? Well, first, I think that Democrats need to show that democracy can uh, produce, that it can meet the needs of its people. Uh, one of the reasons why Donald Trump was successful in 2016 is that there were millions of Americans felt left behind um, who worked their whole lives and had nothing uh, to, to um, put aside for their retirement. They were going to have to work till they dropped and the future for their kids looked even more bleak. They were in debt. They'd, maybe they'd been lucky enough to go to college, but there was no job when they got out. Uh, and here was a guy promising to break everything. And there were a lot of people willing to say, OK, break everything. Um, if it will at least have the prospect, hold the prospect of improving my lot, break everything. And he did. And of course, it didn't improve their situation. Uh, and and those folks, we need to meet their needs, their legitimate economic needs. Um, and I think that's why the, the president has put such a priority on Build Back Better. Um, and and I fully expect and know we're going to pass that. Um, and along with the infrastructure bill and the rescue plan, uh, it's going to be the most substantial investment in the American people since the Great Society and maybe even since the New Deal. Uh, so, number one, we have to show that a democracy can deliver. Um, but, but I also think, and this gets to your point also, we need to be much better as a party in how we communicate. Uh, and we need to be much more focused on the heart of what we're doing and who we're, who we're trying to respond to in terms of the unmet needs of the American people. Um, uh, we don't have the luxury that Republicans do of a behemoth media empire like Fox and uh, all the associated right-wing TV, the OANs and Newsmaxes that can just uh, belch out uh, the, the former president's talking points. Uh, we don't have that kind of infrastructure. Um, we're also a much more diverse party. Uh, when I need to find a Republican uh, on the House floor, I have to tell you, it's hard because they all look like me. Um, but the Democratic Party is a very diverse party. I'm very proud of that. Um, but it's it's harder when you're a big, diverse party to be um, uniform in message. But all of that is is to say that we need to be better and more disciplined at it. Um, because we don't have the advantages that the Republicans do uh, in terms of their media amplifier. And, uh, and so um, that, I think, is a, a very legitimate criticism of the party, that we're not better uh, and more focused on our message. Um, because if, hell, if we can't beat a party that is an anti-truth, QAnon-based, uh, autocratic cult um, with, with crazies like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the rest of them, um, you know, then we don't deserve to govern. So uh, we're going to have to be much better at it. Uh, it you know, I, 
I have a friend who is to the left of, of me. And, um, you know, when I try to say the two parties are different and he says, no, they're really not. Um, and there are some fundamental ways he's like, you know, both parties are very similar. And do you, can you honestly say that the two party, you feel like the two parties are, are truly different or is there, is there something very similar about them that makes you uncomfortable? No, I, I think the, the parties have never been more different than they are today. And, um, and I'll just give you two illustrations. The first is when the Republicans controlled everything, they used that power to give a $2.2 trillion tax cut to wealthy families and corporations. That was their top priority. That's how they used their power. When the Democrats took the majority, we used about the same amount of resources to lift half the kids in the country out of poverty, uh, to help uh, small businesses and uh, families struggling to keep a roof over their head. That's what we did. Uh, in that simple contrast, lifting kids out of poverty, rewarding rich people and large corporations, you can see where the priorities of the two parties are. Um, but also in, in now an even more fundamental way, we have one party that is committed to our democracy and another that is hostile to it. Um, and that to me is, is the sharpest, um, most long-term uh, destructive uh, difference in the parties. Um, one of the two great American parties is no longer a party of ideas or ideology that I might disagree with, but at least it was an ideology. Now they're an autocratic cult around a single human being, a single deeply flawed, immoral human being. Uh, and as long as that's the case, there's no negotiating with them. They just need to be beaten. They just need to be beaten at the polls. We cannot allow that kind of irresponsible, reckless, autocratic government uh, to take shape. Um, so, uh, you know, I understand, uh, although I didn't agree with it at the time when people were saying there's no difference between Bush and Gore, uh, and then we got Bush and we saw what a difference there was. But there's no dispute now. I don't think there should be. Uh, between what the Democratic Party represents and what the Republican Party has become. Um, uh, you know, Donald Trump, and this is, continues to be an astonishment to me, completely remade the Republican Party in his image mm -hmm. with breakneck speed. It really is, it, it is incredible. Um, got it to abandon its beliefs, uh, got it to abandon its, its ethics, its you know, even its professed belief in family values, um, shredded it. Um, really, it's, it's just uh, startling. And it, to me, it has opened a window of insight into the 1930s uh, and how people could be so quickly moved by a xenophobic populist leader to the most destructive ends. Yeah, no, I've absolutely... Uh, I can no longer look at other countries in South America or Africa or wherever and say, how did they, how do they have this crazy dictator who's in charge? And like, well, what did you guys do? Uh, right now it appears that he could very well be the nominee in 2024. Does that scare you because he's that close to getting back to the Oval Office? Um, or does it make you feel like, yeah, please, please nominate him because we'll beat him again? Uh, no, I don't feel that way at all. Uh, I felt that way 
in 2016, I, I used to, I mentioned this in the book, I used to tell a joke during the 2016 presidential campaign. You'll, you'll appreciate this. I used to say, there's no way that Donald Trump is going to become the Republican nominee. Uh, and people say, why? And I said, well, two reasons. First, Republicans are not that crazy. And, and second, Democrats are not that lucky. Well, it turns out they were that crazy, um, but we were not at all lucky. And, and so, no, I don't wish for him to be the nominee because he could win. Um, so, but I, I do think, and I think we have to operate under this expectation at this moment and from here on, he will run and he will be the nominee. Um, and I'm convinced he will run because it would be intolerable to him to see the attention uh, focus on Mike Pence or Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or any of these people. He would go berserk uh, if, if suddenly one of them were the nominee, not him. So I think he's going to run because pathologically he cannot not run. Um, but I also think that at the moment, um, he has got such a stranglehold on the base of that. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash thrivemarket.com slash This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free party that no one is going to arrest it from him in the in the near future uh, i would like to think in the in the midterm and long-term future that that party is reclaimed by people um people of ideas uh, people like liz cheney and adam kinzinger uh, and others that that have a, a core set of beliefs and they might be different than mine but at least they have something that they believe in passionately uh, and it's uh and it's not an autocratic cult uh, around donald trump Hey, peeps, it's your girl, Danielle Moody, host of Woke AF Daily. Every weekday, I'm sounding the alarm and keeping you woke to all the pure evil that is going on in our country. Check me out now at patreon.com slash woke AF. Get five new shows every week for just $5 a month. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. You were one of the leaders, of course, in the impeachment uh, proceedings, and you talk about that a lot in the book. When you look at where we are now, after 1-6, Trump, the leading name to be the 2024 nominee, 
Do you look back on impeachment and say, what what did we do that for? What what did we get out of that? I mean, I I, I can't imagine the long term uh, goal was where we are now. Uh, when I do look back on it, uh, you know, and, and obviously I'm biased, but uh, I think that impeachment was hugely important uh, for two reasons. First, because it said it reinforced to the country that at least one of the parties believes that that kind of corruption is incompatible with the presidency. You cannot withhold hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to an ally that's at war with an adversary like Russia and do it so you can get them to help you cheat in the election. Um, So I think it was very important for, for us to demonstrate to the American people, no, that is not compatible with office. Um, But I also think that, uh, and, and I, I mentioned this to the other managers at the time, we're trying this case to two different juries. There was the jury of the Senate, and then there's the jury of the American people. And the more important jury is the American people, because these senators are not going to convict. I think we knew that going in. Um, but we wanted to expose the president's corruption to the American people. And I would like to believe that exposing his corruption had an influence on people. Uh, who decided to reject him in 2016, uh, in 2020. Um, So I think it was enormously important, uh, or we might have had four more years of Donald Trump. Um, There's there's no problem with that remedy of impeachment, uh, even though senators voted to acquit, uh, at least some of them, too many of them. Um, The problem isn't with the remedy. The problem is that notwithstanding how well that remedy is crafted, if the people in elective office don't give content to their oath, uh, if they're not willing to acknowledge right and wrong and the truth, none of it works. doesn't matter how brilliant the Constitution is written or how tightly constrained our laws are. If those laws, laws are not uh, animated by people acting in good faith, they don't work. Um, that, that, to me, has been one of the painful lessons um, uh, about the, the last four years, that uh, Donald Trump didn't do this alone. Um, had the Republican Party stood up to him, uh, as, as in the beginning they, they tried in the primary, and they stood up to him, they could have saved the country from this disaster. Um, and uh, I, I do find inspiration from those who have, and, and, and uh, the book is as much about those heroes, the people like Alexander Vindman and Marie Ivanovich and Bill Taylor and Fiona Hill and others who defied the president and told the truth and exposed his corruption. Uh, those heroic stories are really important because they, they inspire us to get through this. And, and I have every confidence we will get through this. We, we don't have the luxury of despair. Um, we will get through this. But what, what we do now, um, we can't all be Marie Ivanovich, but we can all in our private life and our public life uh, in whatever means we have. Um, We can defend our democracy uh, at its time of great peril. You think that the impeachment hearings had a substantive impact on the 2020 election that I'm trying to do the political math. You think either some folks in the middle listened and said, yeah, we can't go further with this guy, or some folks on the left said, yeah, this is too much, and came out to vote when they would not. I feel like almost every ear who was paying attention to you in your presentation 
had already made up their mind. They had already decided Trump is horrible or, you know, they're just out to get him and he's our guy. Do you feel like you moved some people? Is that what you're saying? I, I definitely feel we moved people. And, and I'll give you probably the most dramatic uh, uh, example. Um, at the beginning of the trial, uh, you know, I thought, you know, Republican senators, I'm sure, are familiar with the facts. Um, you know, you could not help but see all the hearings that we had in the House, and they were covered so broadly and got such, um, uh, you know, enormous attention. But I wasn't going to presume that either. And because I was trying the case, we were trying the case to the public, I was going to put on all that evidence, even if they had seen it before. Well, I came to find out that the Republican senators did not know the evidence. Uh, indeed, they were shocked when they did hear the evidence. Because all they knew had been filtered through Fox. Uh, and you even had Republican senators saying publicly out loud that, you know, gosh, it's, it's kind of surprising how, how strong that case is. Uh, and, and even Republicans who ultimately um, voted to acquit said, you know, like uh, Lamar Alexander um, in voting against uh, hearing from John Bolton, he said the House proved its case, uh, you know, umpteen different ways. Do we really need them to prove it one more different way? Uh, or, or, or something to that effect. Uh, so if we could open the eyes of even Republican senators to what happened, undoubtedly open the eyes of, of a great many of the American people. Um, and I would like to think enough that rejected him uh, in the election that was to follow. Um, but uh, uh, this is you know, one of the reasons why the January 6th committee is so important. That is, the American people deserve the truth. They deserve the full facts. They need the full facts to inform their judgment about the future. Uh, and so um, one of the things that also gives me encouragement is that on the January 6th committee, Democrats and Republicans are working together uh, with a common objective of getting the full facts, telling the full truth to the American people um, because they have a right to know and because they have a need to know. One last thing that I ask everybody, uh, just... You have had an extraordinary political career. You've been in office over 20 years, right? Um, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary life. What is your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other folks that has led to the success that you've had? Well, I would say uh, over the last few years, um, well, I, <laughs> when people would ask me this uh, question, I, I used to joke that I take a lot of horse tranquilizers. Uh, until someone told me that that's actually a thing, so I probably shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> I, I, for me, it's been really a sense of mission. Um, I, you know, for reason of no merit of my my own, happened to be in a place at a time chairing the Intel Committee when when it became the center of what was happening, and uh, at a time when when the country uh, and its democracy were really at risk, and. I thought, I'm in a position to do something about this. There are millions of people around the country who, who feel powerless to do anything about their circumstances. Um, because I have this chance to do something, I need to do it to the best of my ability. And I would get up in the morning and I would say, I just need to get through the day. And at the end of the day, I would, I would say with some surprise, I'm still standing. And I'm going to keep doing this every day until this crisis has passed. Um, but I do want to communicate to people, that's, that's not a superpower. Um, that 
uh, every one of you has that ability. And indeed, I think every one of you has that responsibility right now. Uh, don't try to do it all. I didn't try to do it all. Um, I only tried to do what I could. Um, so uh, don't be overwhelmed by all the things you see that, that seem so oppressive and negative. Focus in on say, okay, this is the one thing I'm going to do to make a difference in the life of my community and my country. Um, and, and then do it. Uh, because the doing uh, is the best antidote. Uh, uh, the doing is what the country really needs. And uh, Stacey Abrams showed what that can mean in the state of Georgia, and that had a huge impact. Uh, none of what we're doing would be possible had that effort not been successful. And her effort was, you know, was was the, the organization of the efforts of a great many others. Uh, each one of those others that was part of that um, was responsible for changing the direction of the country. Um, and so those opportunities are legion. Um, we all need to, to ask ourselves, you know, what can we do to make a difference in the life of our country? I uh, take it one day at a time. Thanks so much to Congressman Schiff for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt. Marcus Harkis, Noel Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Dr. Kina Murphy, Earl Dorsey, Theotokis, and Noma. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.